Well, again, hey, happy Easter. Happy Easter, church. Thank you guys so much for being here this morning. If you have a Bible with you, open up to Colossians. Uh, Colossians is a short little book in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 3. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. You can read along. We'll have the scripture on the screen for you to read with us today. But we are uh, currently in the middle of a sermon series through the book of Colossians in the New Testament here at Kernan. And uh, we typically preach through books of the Bible one at a time. And so right now, in the middle of this particular one, uh, we're looking at a letter. So this book is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to new Christians uh, in the ancient city of Colossae. And so uh, the theme or the question that Paul continues to ask in this letter is, is Christ enough? That's what he wants the new Christians living in Colossae to answer, to be able to answer. Is Christ, is he really enough for you? Is he enough for your joy and your fulfillment in life? And so what we're seeing each week is that the Apostle Paul is answering that question emphatically saying, yes, Christ is enough. And we're looking at that in a different way from a different angle as we go through this letter each week. So today, I tell you that to say we're continuing. Uh, we're continuing to look and answer this question today. Is Christ enough? And we just happen to be in Colossians 3 verses 1 through 4. So uh, let's pray and let's ask Jesus to bless his word and help us to see it, help us to understand it this morning. Jesus, thank you so much for your word, for your truth. Lord, we believe that you are a God who wants to be known, the one true God. You have revealed yourself to us and you've given us information about yourself through the written word. Lord, we believe and hold true to this. So Jesus, now we pray that you would speak through your Holy Spirit into our hearts. Let these words of Scripture change who we are. Let us see you for who you really are. Let us see ourselves for who we really are and the great grace that you offer us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I don't know about you, but I'm one of those people I still prefer a physical book in my hands. Like I'm not, I'm not in the Kindles and I don't like really even audio books much. If you do, that's great for you, but I'm just kind of the old school. Like I want a real book in my hands. And so one of my favorite stores in the world is Barnes and Noble. So Christy, my wife and I, uh, and our seven-year-old, five-year-old and three-year-old, we, we go to Barnes and Noble at the town center here in Jacksonville fairly often. Is that a mistake? Probably. We haven't been kicked out yet but it might happen, all right? You may see us on the news. So, uh, but we spend, we spend a lot of time mostly uh, in the kids section, which is great. You know, I could tell you about all the kids' books at Barnes & Noble. Uh, by the way, did you know, did you know the Burns, there's a Bernstein Bears book about literally every topic in the world. It's amazing. I mean, to live in a tree, those bears are really well-cultured. Like, it's, it's fascinating. <laughs> but... Here's the thing, right? When, when we occasionally make it outside of the kids section in Barnes & Noble, here's what you'll find. You'll find a history section, right, that tells us about humanity's past, 
you'll find a current affairs section where everybody in the world feels like they need to write a book about every single topic that's happening in the news currently, right? And that's exhausting, so I just avoid that section, right? And then we see a section or sections, multiple, that deal with something about our future. In other words, hey, here's a book that will help you become a better version of yourself, right? So that could be a business leadership book. It could be a cookbook. It could be travel guide, right? It could be literally anything that has to deal with something about you and your future being better. That's what we see when we walk, when we walk around bookstores, right? So imagine this, all right? Imagine what if there was an entire bookstore that was dedicated to telling your life story. Some of you are probably like, no thanks, I'm good. I don't need everybody knowing my business, right? But what if, just play along with me, what if there was a bookstore and it was just about you? It was your life story. So just play along, right? What would the history, what would the history section say about your past? What would the current affairs section say about your, and current, your current involvement in the world and the things that you're presently going through? And what about all the other books about your future? What would they say about what you aspire to be one day? About what you're afraid of that may happen to you in the future? About the kind of person or the version of yourself that you wish you were? You see, one of the most remarkably unique things about what we call Easter is that Easter has something to say about each of our life stories. In fact, Easter speaks about your past, it speaks about your present, and it speaks about your future. That's what I want us to see today, and as we look at Colossians 3 verses 1 through 4, what what we'll see is that If you are truly a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have a relationship with him, then Easter is, it is your life story. Let's read Colossians 3 verses 1 through 4. The Apostle Paul writes to this church, these new Christians, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So what I want us to see today from these four short verses is simply this. For a follower of Jesus, this is what's true. Christ is our past, he is our present, and he is our future. What does that mean, though? Okay, I get you. That sounds catchy, whatever. But what does this really mean? Well, let's, let's break it down. Number one, what does it mean when we say Christ is our past? The late physicist Stephen Hawking once said, we spend a great deal of time 
studying history, which, let's face it, is mostly the history of stupidity. Now, Hawking was an atheist, but we can agree with him somewhat on this, can't we? Humanity as a whole, we admit, we know, has made some colossal failures in the past. But unfortunately, that's true for us as individuals, is it not? You see, the truth is, if our lives were a bookstore, there's going to be a lot of books in the history section that you don't want anyone reading. We all have a past. We've all made serious mistakes. We've all had epic failures of different sorts to different degrees. But why is this? Hawking is actually, or was actually on to something. There's a sliver of truth there. Why is this? In other words, why is it a common denominator amongst every person that we all have a shady past? That we all have failures in our lives and a past that we're not proud of. Why is that true about every single human who's ever lived? It's because we're bad with directions. Now, I don't mean we're bad at following directions, though that is also true. What I mean is we directionally, we don't know up from down. Now, you may be good with some directions in terms of north, south, east, and west, right? I thought I was good with directions, and then I got married, and then I realized I wasn't, right? <laughs> because there's someone beside me now telling me that I know go this way. I'm like, I know, the GPS is on, okay? We get it. We're going the right way. Take a left here. No, take a right. I've been here before. I don't even need the GPS. The male pride really comes out in me in that moment, right? But here's the thing. We, as humanity, we are bad with directions in terms of what's up and what's down, since the beginning of time, humanity has not been able to focus properly on the things above, as Paul says in Colossians 3. The Bible tells us we were created for God. We were created for Him. Like that is the purpose and the meaning of your life. You were created to bring God glory. He is your creator. He created you to be in a relationship with Him, to love Him, to know Him to tell others about him, to worship him, to love him with all your heart, mind, and soul, to submit to him and his good design that he gave us so that we could thrive as a society. That is a good God who gave us everything we need to thrive. And we, we are having trouble and have always had trouble with direction, looking up to him, to submit to him truly, he is our creator. He knows what's good for us. But instead of looking up to God and living within the good boundaries he designed for this world to operate, instead of finding our ultimate peace and fulfillment in him and in his good gifts, instead of looking up, we keep our hearts and our minds fixated on the things below, Paul says. The things of this earth here now. We do this in a constant search. We are constantly seeking happiness and fulfillment and joy and peace in our lives. Meaning. I mean, who doesn't want to know that your life has meaning and purpose? Who doesn't want a funeral where all your loved ones and friends gather and they are able to say something significant about your life? We all want that and that's okay that we want that. But Romans 1.25, Paul tells us there, 
that there's a serious problem, here's the common denominator with all of us. That we have exchanged this truth about God for some kind of lie in the world. In other words, God created us to find peace and fulfillment and meaning and bringing Him glory. Yet we have believed some other kind of lie in this world that something else could bring us that fulfillment. Something else could rise above God and be what we ultimately need. And so Paul says, it's true about all of us. We have exchanged this lie and we worship and serve creature, creatures, the creation instead of the actual creator. We take good gifts from God and instead of using them to worship him, we worship sometimes the gifts themselves. We may turn them into idols. So God says to us, Use your career and use your wealth to glorify me by helping create a God-glorifying society on earth. That's what God says to us, and what do we do? We take his good gifts, we take our career, we take our money, and what do we do? We just turn it around on ourselves to just only fulfill our selfish desires. God says to us, hey, use your friendships that I give you. Use your relationships that you have to honor me and to reflect my character of love to others so others can see my goodness. But what do we do? Instead, we worship. We worship the need to be approved by others. We worship the need to be accepted by others, and we compromise ourselves in so many ways just so people will like us. Do you see it? Do you see the common denominator? It is true about all of us. It's a funny thing. It's a funny kind of way of rejecting a good God who loves us. We take the good things He gives us, but we turn them into things that we must have. We turn them and twist them and distort them and corrupt them. We worship, as Paul says, the creation instead of the creator. So the Bible says this is a serious problem. This is our past. This is everything that a book would say about your past in some form or another. This is it. This rebellion that we've all done against our Creator, the Bible calls that sin. That's what the word sin is. You've heard it. If you're familiar with any kind of religion or religious activity or anything like that, you've probably heard the word sin. But here's the thing about sin, rebelling or disobeying God. It's not just that we do some bad things occasionally and God's not happy with us. And then we have to do some good things to make God happy with us again. That's not what sin's about. It goes so much deeper than that. It's a deep problem that we never want to admit about ourselves. It's that we have tried to take over his throne. Like That is what sin is. At its deep root level, sin is not just you doing some bad things with some bad motivations. It is who you are. It is the fact that God is seated on his throne and yet we say, hey bud, thanks, I'll take over from here. Let me sit on the throne. I don't want to submit to your authority. I want to be my own authority. We don't seek, we don't seek to live in the story that God's unfolding. No, we want to write our own story and we don't want anyone taking the pen from our hands. That's our past. It's all of our past. That's why Paul says in Romans 3, 11, he says, no one understands. No one seeks for God. Not naturally left in our own condition to ourselves. We're not seeking God. But this comes with a price. In the end, 
In the end, God must and will punish all evil and sin. Left to ourselves, that includes us. God is a just judge. He's a holy judge. And He will judge all acts and people who are evil and sinful. But guess what? The Bible says that's all of us. So that's bad news. Romans 6.23 tells us that the price we pay for this is eternal death. Separation from God forever. So in the end, listen, in the end, if you want to write your own story, in the end, that is exactly what you'll get. You will get your own story without God forever. So our past, our past as a human race and as individuals, it just doesn't look so great, does it? But when thinking about our past failures and sins, we have to look a lot farther back than just last week or last year or a couple of decades ago. We need to look back 2,000 years ago because it is there that we see something about our past. The theologian Dick Lucas says, in biblical teaching, there is no human search for God. The story is from the beginning that of a divine search for those who hide from their maker. In other words, God is the one seeking after us. The good news, the good news about your past is this. Even though you didn't seek him, God sought you. That is the news about your past that we all want to hear. Jesus said this to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Jesus was telling Nicodemus something, a Pharisee of the Jewish religion, he was telling him something about what was going to happen to him later in his life. Something that happened 2,000 years ago. The reason we're here today celebrating. You see, Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth on a rescue mission because God knew, right? God knew that none of us would ever live a life good enough to make him perfectly happy because God is holy. He's perfect. And so sinful creatures cannot live with a perfectly holy God who hates sin forever. So that's a great dilemma for us. There is a gap. There is a debt. There is a divide there that no single person can bridge. No matter how many good things you do, no matter how much money you give to charity, no matter how many times you help someone carry their groceries to the car, whatever, Whatever you think you have to do to just call yourself a good person, to feel good about yourself, God says, it ain't happening. It's like trying to jump across the Atlantic Ocean to Africa. Go ahead. Let's go to the beach right now. Let's see. Who can do it? How many feet are you going to make it? Right? Obviously, you saw earlier, I'm not making it very far, right? <laughs> That's the gap. That's the bridge. There's no amount of good we could do to please a perfect holy God forever. This is the dilemma, and that's exactly why Jesus came to earth. Do you hear this? That is why Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth to do what you can't do. He came to live that perfect life in your place. He knew that you couldn't do it, and he came and he did it. And he did it as your substitute. And then above that, he came and he died on a cross, which was a Roman 
form of execution that was the most vile of suffering and pain you could ever imagine, Jesus Christ voluntarily gave up his life on that cross and suffered for us. Why? Because in that moment, he is paying the penalty of death that you should have paid. In that moment when he's hanging on the cross, he is not just wiping a few things under the rug that you did that were bad. No, he was taking all the sins you've ever committed on his own self, on himself, so that you would never have to. That's the good news. That's what we celebrated on Friday when we were here, that Jesus took our sin. And get this, there's more. In exchange, you know what? He gives you his record. Do you have a shady past? Are, you, are there things you've done that you're not proud of? Sure, all of us do. Jesus takes that on himself. And in return, this is amazing. And this is real. He gives you his record of righteousness, of perfect obedience. He credits it to your spiritual heart and account. There's more. On Sunday morning after he died on the cross, God accepted the payment for your sin and Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He didn't have to stay dead anymore. The power of sin and death had been defeated. There was literally nothing that could hold him back. The God who creates a universe with his words can create new life in Jesus, raising him from the dead, and can create a new life in you today. This isn't wishful thinking. This is legal. This is a legal issue. It really is. This is about your legal standing before a holy God in heaven. So as a Christian, a Christian, a Jesus follower, is someone who has believed this to be true about themselves, about Christ, and what he did about it. That it is Jesus in your place. All of it. A Christian is someone who admits that. A Christian isn't someone who comes to church every week and gives money and does all these great things because they're trying to earn God's approval. No, we come to church. We come to church and we serve and we worship and we give because we love what God has already done for us. We love Him for who He is. It's not about how good you can be. It's about how good He's already been for you. It's just admitting that you don't have what it takes it's admitting that you can't please him and love him with all these things. It's giving your life to him and, and accepting him as your substitute, as your savior. That is salvation. It's when we stop trying to save ourselves and trust that he has taken care of our past. Colossians 3, verse 3, as we read earlier, that's why Paul can say, for you have died. He says, you've died. And then in verse 1, what did he say? You've been raised with Christ. It's because you've been united to him. Listen, we can't rewrite our past, but God can because he forgives you and he pays in full for all that you've done. His track record becomes yours. The second thing we see here today is that not only is Christ our past, he's our present. So Paul, if you notice in verse 3, what did he say? He said, we are hidden in Christ presently. And in verse 4, that Christ is your life. Now that's strong language telling us that we are secure in Jesus. We are united to him forever and that changes everything. 
In Galatians 2, Paul said this. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live presently, right? Presently in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says something similar there in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that we are a new creation in Christ. So when you trust Christ as your true Savior, you become a truly new person. You have a new purpose for living. You have new desires now in the present. That's your life. Your heart and your mind have been changed. You experience a directional change. You're not fixated on the things below. Now you can look up. You can look above. We have Christ. And now we see that in Him. The one who sits at the right hand of God, the ruler of the universe, we see that in him we have, we have all the acceptance we could ever want. We have all the approval, the success, the security we could ever want or need because he is our life. It's him. He is our success. He is our approval. He is everything you could ever want or need. So in the present then, our hearts and our minds are facing a different direction. We're fixated on different time, kind of goals. Look what Paul says in verses 1 and 2. What do we do now? Since our lives have been changed by Christ, we seek the things that are above. We set our minds on things that are above. We seek the truth of Christ. We want to know, what does God love? Because that's what I want to love. What does God cherish? Because that's what I want to cherish. What has God said that is true about myself, that is true about the way this world should operate? I want to know these things. I want to seek these things that are above so that I can live for him on this earth. It's real life change. It's intentionally managing our thoughts to dwell on what is right and true. It's, it's knowing that where Christ is is where ultimate and absolute truth is, and, and that's what we're seeking. Our hearts and our minds are in heaven. That's where they are, but, but that doesn't mean that our heads are in the clouds and, and we're just you know walking around the earth all loosey-goosey, not knowing what we're doing and like not making any sense to people. That's not what this is saying. It's not a head in the clouds kind of life. It means our actions here and now are driven by the truth of heaven. C.S. Lewis, in his classic book, Mere Christianity, speaks of this. He says, A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves, he says, who set foot on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, and others who left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied in heaven. To seek the things above means we should never see our current story as insignificant, but it also means that our current story is just a small paragraph in the grand story of God. The Bible is where we find God's thoughts, His desires, what He loves. So how are you currently seeking those things? How are you currently seeking that truth? How are you seeking God's truth, the things above, in your marriage? How are you seeking God's truth as an employee? as a parent, as a grandparent, as a friend, as a neighbor, 
Are you seeking the things that are above what God has said is true in all these areas of our lives? Number three, not only do we seek currently, presently, the truth of God and how it applies to our lives as a Christian, what do we do? We see also something about our future. Christ is our future. Just as our past and our present is secure, hidden in Christ, so is your future. Look what, G, uh, look what Paul look what Paul said in verse 4. He said, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now what is he saying? What, what Paul is alluding to here is that Jesus will return one day. Christ will return. He is going to come back. The first time he came, he was a baby born into poverty. And the next time he comes, he will be a warrior king who will defeat all sin and evil. And he will gather his people to live with him forever. <laughs> that is amazing. But how will we appear with him? That's an interesting way of Paul putting this. How will we appear with him? Well, look at this. Romans 6, 5, Paul says, if, For if we have been united with him in a death like his we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. What Paul is saying is that we can appear with Christ one day and live with him forever because of resurrection. There's a story in the Bible that I love in John chapter 11. One of Jesus' best friends died. His name was Lazarus. And Lazarus had some sisters and, and family, and, and Jesus loved this family. And as Jesus was making his way to the scene, to the tomb, after Lazarus died, Martha, the sister of Lazarus, came up to Jesus. And, and here's just a snippet of this conversation. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And she's right. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? The author, Timothy Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, comments about the significance of the resurrection. I want you to listen to this. He says, the biblical view of things is resurrection. It's Easter Sunday. Listen to me. It's Easter Sunday. The only reason we're even here is because we proclaim as followers of Jesus that he actually really did raise from the dead. That's why we're here. So listen to this. He says, the biblical view of things is resurrection. Not a future that is just a consolation for the life we never had, but a restoration of the life you always wanted. This means that every horrible thing that ever happened will not only be undone and repaired, but will in some way make the eventual glory and joy even greater. 
What the scriptures teach us is that Jesus Christ will return and he will judge all people and those who will be found safe and hidden in him are not those who impressed him with how good they tried to be, how good of a savior they tried to be themselves. It will be those who fell on their knees and humbly said, I can't do it. Jesus, do it for me. Be everything I could never be and he will gather his people. And the Bible tells us that he is going to restore this earth, that we will live with him forever on this earth and it will function and it will operate exactly how God originally designed it to because there will be no sin, there will be no death. There will be no corruption, there will be no sickness or pain or suffering of any kind. All things that are sad will become untrue. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ has defeated the capability, the power of sin and death to do anything. It will always be forever done. That is the paradise. That is the earth that Jesus is creating, that he is restoring. And so we see a glimpse, a description of this beautifully in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. In other words, this is when Jesus is returning and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Hear this. Death is swallowed up in victory. When we stand at the grave of one of our loved ones and we see their casket about to be lowered into the earth, as Jesus' followers, we stand there and we know that this is a temporary shell. This is something that is not going to last forever. Though we grieve, though our grieving is authentic and real, there is also an underlying river of joy that flows in our hearts because we know that resurrection is coming. Because the one who raised from the dead has already secured your future. So we say, O oh death, where is your victory? O oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. In other words, trying to be good, trying to impress, trying to obey. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, Paul says, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Whatever you are doing now that you are concerned about or presently going through your work and labor as you seek the things above, as you seek Jesus Christ is not in vain. God is using that. He is working all things together for good for those who are love him and are called according to his purpose. Do you see the joy? Do you see the joy of the resurrection? Do you feel the comfort of this truth knowing that Jesus is your life? Christ is our life. What do you hate about your past? What do you hate about your past? Jesus died for it. It's been dealt with. Your failures have been crucified with Christ and are forever gone. What are you struggling with now? What are you struggling with now? When you walked into this room, the anxiety and the fears that you're currently going through, Jesus knows. He is present. 
He is here with you in this right now, whatever it is. He knows. He knows the pain of suffering and loss firsthand. He experienced himself. He knows ridicule. He knows rejection. He is your strength right now, right here in this place. He is present with you. What are you afraid of? What are you hoping for? What do you really, truly worry about in your future? Good news is, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus is your future. We aren't promised an easy-peasy life on this earth, but we are promised resurrection life in a resurrected world one day. So my final question to you is this. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for that? I'm not asking do you want it. I'm asking are you ready for it? Have you given your life to Christ? Have you accepted His sacrifice on your behalf and trusted Him to be your Savior? The simple way of asking it is this. Is Christ your life?